Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We're walking you through the flames. This week, the debate is over President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy that has left nearly 2,000 migrant children separated from their parents. Experts will hash out reunification efforts, lawsuits, and the current status of what's happening at the border, local impact, and more. Our newsmaker has spent more time behind bars than on the streets as a free man. When I was in prison, I just woke up one day and I just, it just hit me on the aspect of, oh, I'm in prison for being somebody that I'm not. His transformation behind the wall and his rise from incarceration to internet sensation. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus this week is the impact of President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy, Rolled out this past spring, it called for the prosecution of all migrants that cross the U.S. border illegally. When you prosecute the parents for coming in illegally, which should happen, you have to take the children away. Nearly 2,000 children have been taken from their parents and detained separately in recent weeks. Images of young children crying in despair caused outrage. And on Thursday, President Trump executed an order ending the separation amid pressure from Congress and others. I didn't like the sight or the feeling of families being separated. But now the question is reunification. Some say the children are being returned to their families. Other reports say it's impossible since some parents of very young nonverbal children have already been deported. Now the lawsuits are piling up and Congress has failed to pass a compromise bill. Where does America stand at the border and what can be done to fix this mess? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Erica Almiron. She's executive director of Juntos, a grassroots group that advocates for the rights of immigrants. We also have Ricky Palladino. He's a Philadelphia attorney in private practice, but has experience at the Immigration and Naturalization Service, also working with ICE. And finally, on the phone, we have Galnaz Fakimi. She is the ACLU of Pennsylvania's immigrants' rights attorney. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. 
Thanks Thank for you. having Happy me. Happy to be here. And I just want to say, for the record, I did invite a number of Trump supporters and um, Republicans to appear on the show today, but we were repeatedly declined. So I just want to put that out there. And so I want to start with you, Ricky. I, uh, can you lay out the current status with regard to what is happening and how in the world did we get here? Well, it's interesting how we got here. If you ask uh, members of the Trump administration, first they blamed the Democrats. Then they said there wasn't a policy of separating families at the border. Then they said there was a policy. And then all of a sudden we got an, an executive order issued stating that they will no longer separate uh, families at the border. So that's where we're at now. We have an executive order the interesting question moving forward is how are they going to deal with families um, who are caught at the border that, that are fleeing persecution and, and claim political asylum? And there's some legal hurdles that they need to get through. They actually filed a lawsuit to try to eliminate one of the legal hurdles to be able to detain families for a prolonged period of time. Because the way that the law is written right now, they can only detain children for 20 days. So now that they're not going to separate families, it's going to be interesting to see what moves forward. And we certainly hope and pray that they're unsuccessful in their lawsuit um, and that these kids will not be detained for prolonged periods of time. And there is a consent, the federal consent decree that bars the detention of families, of children specifically for more than 20 days. And, and the Trump administration has said that this is why they've separated people at the border so that they could keep uh, the parent for prolonged periods of time and do whatever with the, with the children separately. And I just want to jump over to Galnez. Galnez, there has been an effort to stop this. Um, how is it affected by this new uh, executive order and, and, and this lawsuit that was filed to get a national class to stop the separation of families? The case is brought by our national offices. It's pending right now in the district court for the Southern District of California. It's called Ms. L. V. Ice. Um, Ms. L. is a Congolese national, a mother who, along with her seven-year-old daughter, did exactly what this administration claims uh, parents like her have to do if they want to seek asylum at our borders. And that is, she and her daughter presented themselves at a port of entry. Um, they were found to have a credible fear. Um, and uh, not long after, um, Ms. L's daughter was forcibly separated from her and detained in Chicago while Ms. L remained detained in California. That's what precipitated the interest of our organization in filing suit. And uh, at this point, Ms. L and her daughter luckily have been reunited, but we know all too well that you know there are countless parents and children who are in the same position that she and her daughter were in. And the point of this suit is to seek reunification um, and to argue that, uh, you know, these measures being taken to forcibly separate parents and children run afoul of, of constitutional due process and un, are unlawful. It's seeking to represent uh, the interests of a nationwide class of parents who've been forcibly separated from minor children um, and the, the litigation seems to be on solid footing so far. We've gotten a good decision from the district court judge allowing the case to go forward, um, and we're hopeful that uh, the case will continue to proceed in a successful way. Erica, I know you you work with families that have been detained long-term at mm -hmm. right here in the Pennsylvania. Tell right. us about what you've seen as far as the impact of long-term detention on families. Well, yeah, I think that the scary part of this moment is that um, what we witnessed was actually Trump 
creating a crisis in order to do what he's always wanted to do, was which, which was create more detention beds to detain more people. We are moving from separating families to an era of creating internment camps for people who are seeking asylum and who are immigrants in this country. So we have to be clear. And what we have is that Burke's Family Detention Center, a -hmm. detention center that was housing uh, families, children as young as six weeks old, two years old for uh, months, one year, two years. Um, And it is devastating. It is actually, um, I believe, a violation of everybody's human rights. You could see that the U.S. pulled out of the human rights um, uh, council. Um, which is really scary also. Like there's a gear up, I think, of this country to further criminalize as many migrants as possible and Mm -hmm. in so doing also torturing them. This is a case of torture. And I think, you know, we need to start sounding the alarm. This is a scary moment. We're not done fighting yet. For people who don't understand how ICE works and how border security works, um, Ricky, could you explain a little bit about what zero tolerance means a little bit? It's good to first understand the agencies that are involved. When I previously worked for the agency, it was called the Immigration and Nationality Service or Naturalization Service. And that changed after September 11th is now called the Department of Homeland Security, which has three arms. Uh, USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services, the ones that process paper. Customs and Border Patrol, which are those that patrol our border and are there in the airports. And Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Um, So typically when an individual enters the United States and and claims asylum, they're initially met by an agent from Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, and that agent determines whether or not that person has a credible fear uh, of of asylum. So they're acting as a judge in a way. Well, not necessarily. So they they determine whether or not the person has a claim for asylum, and if they do, then they bring in an officer from USCIS, the asylum office – to evaluate that person many times over the phone to see if they have a credible fear of persecution. And if they do, then they're referred to an immigration judge where they can apply for political asylum. And having litigated hundreds of political asylum cases before the immigration court, I can tell you it's extremely difficult to do when you're detained. So um, the zero tolerance policy basically is the Trump administration saying we're going to detain everybody that comes in and applies for asylum. We're not going to release you to allow you to, you know, be with whatever family you have in the United States to work and save money to hire an attorney to represent you through uh, asylum proceedings. You're going to stay detained and fight your asylum case. And if you win, great, we'll let you into the United States. But if you lose, um, then we're going to deport you back to your country. Golnaz, what are some of the human rights issues here? As a matter of international human rights law, uh, there are prohibitions against criminally prosecuting asylum seekers who uh, attempt to cross a border in an irregular way, meaning, you know, other, other than by presenting themselves through a port of entry. So the zero tolerance policy that uh, Attorney General Sessions announced is all about criminally prosecuting any and everyone who seeks to cross our border in an irregular way, meaning not at a formal port of entry. So there's a federal uh, provision of law that criminalizes um, an offense uh, of illegal entry. And this is not a new provision. Um, It's a provision under which prior administrations have undertaken prosecutions. Um, And the offense is a relatively minor one. It's a misdemeanor offense. What's different about how this administration is going about uh, undertaking prosecutions under that provision 
is this zero tolerance policy of, of purporting to need to prosecute any and everyone uh, who is prosecutable under this provision. That's never been done before. And there are a number of former uh, federal prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, who've banded together to speak out against this policy. They've spoken out against this policy because um, it, it's bad for public safety, it's cruel, um, and it's inhumane. It's bad for public safety because the, the resources that get poured into prosecuting any and every illegal entrant are resources that are not going into investigating and prosecuting violations of, of much more serious federal criminal offenses. So that's an important thing for people here mm -hmm. to not lose sight of. Um, and these U.S. attorneys have also pointed out that, you know, historically and currently, it has always been the case that their offices as, as prosecutorial yeah. offices have discretion in which offenses they choose to prosecute, to what degree, and how. And when you're talking about arriving families with young children in tow, it's illogical and cruel and, and very yeah. costly in a lot of different ways. Uh, to and it's costing billions, literally. Oh, billions I mean, it, it, and billions of dollars. It, 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 so it, let's be very clear. It, the prosecutions themselves are costly. To incarcerate the parents criminally is costly. To detain the children in faraway facilities is costly. If the Trump administration were to succeed in uh, being able to detain families together instead of apart, that too would be hugely, hugely costly. Yeah, and they would have and to detention. build more facilities. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and detention takes a toll on kids, period, whether they're separated from their parents or together with their parents. So I, I, this none is, of this makes a shred of sense. And Erica, I want you, this is very political mm -hmm. because DACA was political. Full dreamers being used as political footballs. Now you have babies mm -hmm. and children being used. President Trump said, hey, we're going to do this to force Congress to, mm -hmm. to pass an immigration bill. Is a bill even likely to pass? I mean, I think if we're going to talk politics, we need to understand that this like this administration has been moving from day one to further criminalize and make this community more and more vulnerable and at an aim to also make a profit out of them. So let's start mm -hmm. with DACA has been rescinded. And so now you're making a whole community vulnerable to being deportable. You have TPS from different countries being rescinded, making whole populations of people undocumented. You make asylum a criminal offense and you make immigrants in this country who have been here 15, 20 years also um, under attack by expanding raids. Philadelphia ICE office is the most aggressive in the country. Uh, there was a report that came out last year, uh, last month about that. Um, so what we're seeing is the further criminalization of this community. And the idea is that as we're talking, we have to talk about if we believe in ending mass incarceration, that what they're trying to do is expand and build out more and more detention centers, which is just a fancy word for a prison, right? So as we're, as we're like getting people out of prisons and we're talking about ending cash bail and we're talking about what we need to be doing to make sure that people are protected from a racist system that impacts both black and brown folks, we need to talk about how this is what's happening for immigrants right now. And so... And who makes money off of that? There are three family detention centers that exist right now. One in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. two in Texas. 
the both both of the ones in Texas, which are going to balloon, are both privatized. And so who's making money? How does this make us look, Ricky? It's not a good visual for the United States. And um, you have the, the, the terrible visual of seeing the, the, the children in, in cages. And you also have the administration that really just can't give a straight answer about anything. Um, so you have flip-flopping back and forth. Um, you have the president who, you know, appeared at the, at the World Summit. Um, and there's, you know, the famous photo of him sitting there with his arms crossed and, and the world leaders trying to talk some sense into him. Um, it, it's just a, it's a sad time for America, unfortunately. And the immigration policies of the United States, um, United States citizens like like myself view them as being disgraceful and disgusting. And, and I know for a fact that people across the world do. I mean, in, in many ways, what my job is as an immigration attorney is to help people from across the world immigrate to the United States. And I always say I have the easiest job in the world in some respects because I'm selling the best product. Right. And, and I have to tell you, I mean, the, the people that are the amount of people coming from sophisticated countries where they'd be coming here to um, to work um, or to expand businesses, they, they don't want to come here anymore. Um, and it's unfortunate that uh, that image is now being portrayed uh, across the world. Um, it's it's also sad for our neighbors to the south who really don't have an option to go anywhere else to uh, apply for asylum. They I would can't argue afford... we're sophisticated. Well, oh, no, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely sophisticated, but um, can't afford to to buy plane tickets to go to another country like Switzerland mm-hmm. or European country to um, we're to the apply closest freest comp- country. We're the closest freest places to place to go, and and um, you know there are neighbors to our south, and we're just not treating them nicely. There's a lot of people who think who believe that the, there is an issue at the border. You talk to folks, whether they are immigrants themselves who are now legal citizens or they are, you know, American citizens. And they think, look, there's a border problem. We got to stop people from just coming across the border this way. What, Gomez, if you, if you were to say, okay, separation of families is cruel, is wrong. Mm-hmm. What should the administration do to deal with this issue? Because, when you're talking about the politics of this, if there's no, they, there has to be some solution to appease both sides or all sides. I mean, this is a complicated issue. I can agree with you that it's a complicated issue that doesn't really lend itself easily to to quick um, or easy answers. I'd only urge uh, folks listening to think hard about either the hypocrisy or the tension that exists between a viewpoint that feels strongly that we need some way of strongly enforcing our borders on the one hand, um, and then on the other hand, uh, a disinterest in acknowledging the ways in which um, undocumented labor is, in many respects, the fuel of the American economy, and also a disinterest in acknowledging the ways in which uh, American foreign policy contributes to conditions in countries mm-hmm. abroad that drive migration. I'm not purporting to say that um, uh, there are easy answers to the tensions that exist, I think, between these different things on the one hand versus the other. I would just ask folks not to stay in the dark about those tensions. Um, you know, for, for anybody who's listening who feels strongly that something has to be done to enforce our borders and that borders are important, I would just ask them to think hard about the things that I just mentioned um, and to, to at least be willing to recognize that there may be a tension 
between holding a view that uh, enforcing borders is a huge priority and something hugely necessary, and then on the other hand, you know, some willingness to recognize the things that I've, I've addressed. What do you think is going to take for Congress to actually solve a problem? Well, I don't think we're going to solve it with this administration in power. There's absolutely no way. I think if we're going to look for solutions, we need Sessions, Pence, Trump all need to step down. They are running a white supremacist government. The power that we do have, aside from pushing them out of power, because this is, this is a fascist government. We are moving in that direction. We need to be thinking about local power. What are we doing locally? What are we saying as a people locally in Philadelphia, in the state of Pennsylvania? So my suggestions are that people work to make sure that we do not have family detention in the state of Pennsylvania and that we expand um, our sanctuary city policies to further protect our community and our undocumented people and our loved ones here in Philadelphia uh, while this administration is in power. And will uh, people be getting sent here since there's only three detention centers so far? We're hearing that people are getting sent now. And so, like, we're we're trying to figure out what is actually happening over at Berks. We know that young people are sent to these Office of Refugee Resettlement. Like, also the, the detention babies, centers. The babies yes. and the children are being sent with sponsors and things. And, yeah, there, so we have children that are kind of scattered all over the country right now. But we this isn't new. It's just a ramp up. We're not going to address uh, migration with bills. The U.S. has it has made migration to the U.S. a possibility. Like people are coming from Central America because of decades of U.S. US involvement there. My family is from Paraguay. My parents came because the U.S. was handing money over to our government to ensure that a dictator stayed in power that was killing people. My parents came here and fled because of a of a corrupt government. That was also a result of the U.S.'s hand in everything to to ensure they maintain um, power as an empire. Um, And that is currently happening now. So they I think there is a a rush to blame individuals and not look up and think about what is the history of this nation. This isn't the first time that families have been separated. This has happened for hundreds of years uh, from indigenous people to slavery, all of it. If they even try to reunite, what's the, what's the likelihood that the, the kids will get back to the right parents when some parents have been shipped back to their home countries? And then isn't the collateral damage, having the kids already been traumatized, having these families already been damaged? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You, you can't reverse what's what's happened. I certainly, I mean, I know it's been said that they're going to take steps to try to reunite families. I'll believe it when I see it. I think there are challenges in doing that because a lot of the parents have been deported um, or, or exiled from the United States. So I don't know how you reunite a child in the United States with a parent who's outside the United States. How do you find them? It's how do you like, find them? Right. It's 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 a disaster of a situation that should have never ever happened, and we can't reverse what happened. And I hope that that those children are reunited with their parents, but doubt that it will happen. And Golnez, do you think that at the very least, if we were to try to find a sliver of 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 a silver lining here, did American pressure work, you know, individual citizens pushing on their leaders. Did it work? And should we do more? The president's decision to issue this executive order, it is in no way um, a solution to the problem that the president and his administration created. It's it's simply replacing one problem with a different Mm -hmm. problem. So to be very clear, what the president is um, proposing to do instead of detaining parents and children separately 
what he's proposing to do is to detain them together indefinitely. And he recognizes within his own executive order that he can't do that unless first his administration succeeds in getting a court settlement changed. And they've, they've already filed their papers today in a, in a case called Flores to mm. try to tip away at protections that courts had previously uh, put in place uh, to limit the circumstances under which children could be detained, whether they arrived into the U.S. unaccompanied or whether they arrived into the U.S. under the accompaniment of a parent. And what the president wants to do is wipe away and erase those protections and uh, allow for the indefinite detention of families, parents with their children. And even if that means saving the children the extra harm of being detained alone without their parents, we still need to be mindful that detention itself per se is harmful. It's harmful to children let alone indefinite detention. Um, and we all still have very strong cause to be concerned about what the administration's intentions are. We need to remain as vigilant as ever. Because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up, but this is just the beginning. What should people be doing? Are there steps? Mm-hmm. What do we as average Americans could do? What do we advocates tell people? What are we journalists? What do, what do we mm-hmm. as citizens do? And what do you see coming? We have to be more than just vigilant. I think we have to flag that this is the moment in history that will go down, that if we don't do something, that the U.S. Mm-hmm. will go back to having internment camps. They're going to house these families. They're not housing. They're jailing them. So one, we have to recognize what's happening. Two, We have to keep hitting the streets. Call the governor. Call the mayor. Ask him to do more. Tell him to expand sanctuary. We need all of the protections from our local elected officials now. Yeah. Ricky? The silver lining is that, you know, what we've learned is that people's voices can make a difference. And if there wasn't people out protesting, if there wasn't mass hysteria over this particular issue, these kids would still be separated from their families. And more there kids. would still be right. There would there would still be a policy in place. We have to get back out. We have to realize that our voices are heard. And 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 if they're successful yeah. in this lawsuit, get Congress to step in. And final word, Golnas. People have to remember the power that they have as members of the citizenry to whom elected officials are accountable. They have power to organize and to demonstrate visibly in opposition to things that they think are wrong and know are wrong. Um, And we all have an obligation to each other to do just that. Speak up. That's what we have to do and show up. Well, I want to say thank you to Erica Almiron, to uh, Ricky Palladino and to Galnaz Farkimi for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Next up, he's been on the inside since he was 11. Now he's an Instagram sensation. I didn't even think that I would see no age like this. A Philadelphia man's compelling story and two ways he's using it to impact youth. We'll be right back. is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And these days, the criminal justice system has Philadelphia residents hot under the collar. Terms like school-to-prison pipeline, over-policing, excessive sentencing, wrongful conviction, overuse of 911, and the list goes on. Well, one man has seen it all and used social media to become Instagram 
famous beginning while he was in prison. Wallow267 is an online sensation turned motivational speaker and change agent. He's made headlines for his work. And this week, he spoke at the Justice for Meek Mill rally telling his powerful story. Wallow, welcome to Flashpoint. Welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, it's so nice to meet you. I had heard about you for like a long time. And I've been wanting, you were on my list of yes. people to interview. And then, boom, you appeared on the stage. I wiggled my way backstage to meet you. And I'm so glad you're in the KYW studios. For people who have never heard of Wallow267, please tell people your story and how you became famous in this way. Well, Wallow267, uh, my real name is Wallow, Wallace Peoples. People used to call me Wallow. Uh, I grew up in the streets. I was married to the streets of Philadelphia at a young age. You know, I didn't know any better. I didn't know who I was. And I was just following what I seen taking place every time I stepped outside of the house. The first time I got locked up, I was 11 years old, June 30th, 1990, for armed robbery. I got locked up July 7th, 1990, for armed robbery. And then by September 19th, 1990, I was sent off for a year for juvenile facilities. Came back home. Like a month later, got in trouble again, was sent back for another year. And the story goes on. You know, I wound up spending five years in the juvenile system. By the time I turned 17, you know, I got arrested for armed robbery, multiple armed robberies and firearm violations, and I did 20 years. I came home when I was 37. Um, but during that journey through prison, I found out who I was. I found out that uh, I was living a lie, and I was in prison for being somebody that I really wasn't. Because even though I was maneuvering in the street culture, I'm moving, I'm moving around, I would always question certain things that would take place, that would transpire that I wasn't comfortable with because I wasn't all the way in. And when I say all the way in, I just had a different type of conscience. And I did, and I realized that, damn, well, why you do that? You ain't had to do this, or you ain't had to do that, you know. And I used to question some of the homies. And uh, when I was in prison, I would just woke up one day, and I just, it just hit me on the aspect of, oh, I'm in prison for being somebody that I'm not. After that, I started embracing my individualism. I talk about individualism a lot, and I talk about who connecting with your true self, right? And a lot of people end up in trouble because they're disconnected from their true self. And so, who were you? pretending to be because you were disconnected. Everything that I seen, everything that got attention, whether it was a drug dealer, whether it was an armed robber, whether it was a gambler, whether it was a player, it was a pimp, whatever, you know, and I was like, whoa, I need to be that. You know, at the same time, you know, I had people in my life trying to steer me the other way, but they was outnumbered. See, because when you grow up in the hood, in the ghetto, everything is based upon materialism to make you feel good because what it do, it help you temporarily escape the reality. It help you escape the reality of life that you live in. So if you're living in the hood and you can get a car, you get some jewelry, make you feel that you're bigger than that environment that you in and the struggle is taking place in. So that's what happened, you know, and that's what that's what goes on even today. And so you were 17, basically a teenager yeah. when you went in. Yeah, I got certified a, as an adult. Grown man when you come out. come out. If you were to say the big difference between the 17-year-old that went in and the 37-year-old that came out, What's the biggest difference? The biggest difference that I, that I finally embraced who I am. My name was Wallow, and I was in the street. I became Wallow267. DG2670 was my prison number. Now, the reason I carried a 267 is because I remember the place that I was at, where I came from, and where I ain't never going back to. But you were, in a lot of ways, were institutionalized because you started in the system at 11 years old. Yeah, yeah, it was like... That was like That's I, school to prison pipeline. No, I spent more time on this planet and incarcerated than I did free. This is the longest I've ever been out of... of, of institutions in my life. I've been home 16 months right now. I never, I never made it past a year since I was 11. I've never been off probation or, you know, off parole, never since June 1990. How does it feel being a free man? Uh, no, I ain't going to say I'm really free. I'm like, it's like it's an invisible thing because uh, even though I'm out here, I'm still under supervision. 
you know, and uh, one false move can have me back in there forever. Because you yeah, are, yeah. you said you won't actually be free till 2048 or 2048, something? 2048, yeah. And it's a, but it's like, to be able to wake up every morning, you know, you know, almost 40 years old, and to be free, and to be breathing, that's like something I never even met. I didn't even think that I would see no age like this. Do you feel some ways prison saved your life? Probably. If you have been be, still out at that, yeah, with that mindset, yeah, that maybe yeah. you wouldn't have made prison, it. See, the thing about prison is, you got a lot of programs. You got a lot of people that work within the system. But at the end of the day, the only program that's going to really work for you is the program within yourself. When you say you're tired of the BS, you're tired of living this lifestyle, and you realize that you're bigger than you know, the actions that got you there. Now, I, I'm not from Philadelphia. I'm from mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. When I came here, one of the things that I realized was that how the criminal justice system here is a lot different from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And also the level of neighborhood trauma, seeing stuff happen when they grow up or being incarcerated because incarceration can cause trauma. Have you been able to deal with that part of it? We have this thing that we don't even know that's happening unconsciously within us. Mm-hmm. We have it to normalize pain and death. Yes. So it's so no, it's so normal to the part of pain. We're numb to yeah, numb yeah, to yeah, it. It's like you know, oh, what's damn? What's the nigga got killed? Damn, man, that's crazy. Yeah, man, he was a good dude. Boom, boom, boom. You see the game last night? That's what you're taught. Everybody's taught to be tough in the hood, and we're educated to ignore our emotions, suppress our feelings. So now you, you dehumanize. Yeah, but when you were go, got on stage at the Justice for Me rally, you were emotional. I'm never going to be selfish with my emotions. I ain't going to fight the feeling because once I embraced my individualism, I came alive. And so while you were in prison, you somehow were able to create <laughs> messages mm-hmm. and get them out. But I got a cell phone and I started Wallow 267 Instagram in prison. And I used to you know, promote people products and things that was going on in the community, in the hood. And, uh, so you were in prison finding stuff online and promoting it. Yeah, on Instagram, like promoting it. I was just doing all types of stuff with it, just putting it out there for the people, mm-hmm. educating them so they can know what's going on and just putting positive messages out there. Yeah. And then so yeah. you started doing this and you started collecting followers. Yeah. And then I and then I got caught with it. What and happened with that? I got I got sent to the hole for a long time. But when I was in the hole, I used to always think about technology. I had to think called the book of life. Everything that people used to come to jail. They used to tell me, they used to be like, yo, man, it's this thing called Google. So I used to write anything down. So, you know, when I get out, I could check it out. So you got out and kind of like blew and up. And just kept going. Now I was ever, instead of posting a message, somebody wrote or whatever, I could talk it. You know, I could encourage people through that. Whatever message you got, whether it's a commercial, whatever you're doing, it got to be swift. It got to be catching. It got to be something that grab your attention, hold you there, give it to you, because you're going to leave and you're going to go somewhere else. And attention is the most valuable thing Attention that you have. Currency. What do you think your gift is? You know, I'm, I'm a connector and I'm a communicator. I speak the language and I'm relevant to the people and places that most people can't get in. You know, I'm just, I, I'm just relevant and I know my audience. And so when you developed your brand, because you have a brand online that you developed, yeah. what are the things you care most about? I care most about helping our people. And when I say our people, I'm talking about everybody that's at the bottom. I don't care if you're green, black, blue, orange. It's about helping people at the bottom. See, there's more people at the bottom on the planet than it is at the top. And a lot of times you just need that push. You could be a millionaire. Yeah. And so how do you feel? I mean, knowing that people do listen to the messages you have. I'm happy that I can help people. Sometimes I'm shocked when I read certain comments because it's like I don't let it get to my head because it's not. That's the problem. Like people get so caught up. Yeah. It's not that important. And we all just people. And yeah, I noticed that because you were talking to folks, folks were coming up to you, yeah. yelling your name at the right rally out. and giving you hugs and just grateful for your presence. Why do you think that is? Because I give it to them. So you can't, you will never get the love you don't show. I just let people know that we all the same. I ain't better than you. You ain't better than me. Yeah. That's what it's all about. What do you do now? And what is your vision for yourself going forward? This is, what, forward? I I this speak, is what you do. I get, you know, I get, I, you know, I do consulting. 
I do a lot of different things. I but 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 the main thing I do is speak, speak you know different places, speaking engagements, uh, advertisement for certain people, and consulting stuff like that. And you're a good speaker. And what do you hope to accomplish? I want to do something for kids in inner cities of America. I'm talking about technical learning centers and stuff like that, teaching them how to build solar panels and code and all that. Because my whole thing is I'm really deep into technology. I'm really like I really love technology. So you got to position these kids to do yeah. things of design way instead of. Buying a sneaker, won't you design a sneaker? It's technology out there that can help you with all this and be able to create a school that could be mimicked in other, you know, yeah. other places. Just doing your thing. Doing I just want to say congratulations Thank to you. you. And please check out his Instagram, Wallow267. Please check him out and, and show him some love because your work is powerful. Your voice is necessary. And um, and I appreciate you coming on Flashpoint, telling us your story and you, and sharing your vision. Next up, she's helping teens deal with mental illness. So when I was 15, my best friend at the time was going through self-harm and suicidal thoughts. The system a Drexel student created to help prevent youth suicide. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Every year, 44,965 Americans die as a result of suicide. That's an average of 123 suicides per day, according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And with two high-profile celebrity suicides over the past few weeks, the topic has been front and center. In comes The Buddy Project, a nonprofit that aims to prevent suicide and self-harm among teens and young adults. Gabby Frost is founder of the organization and has been working to stop suicides and help young people deal with mental health challenges since the age of 15. Gabby, welcome to Flashpoint and to the KYW Studios. Thank you for having me. So, Gabby, for people who don't know, have never heard about The Buddy Project, tell us about it. Buddy Project is a, like you said, a nonprofit aiming to prevent suicide and self-harm among young people. And the main way that we aim to do that is by pairing people as buddies and raising awareness for mental health. And the whole buddy pairing aspect of that has kind of been what we've been doing since day one. That was really what caused me to want to start the organization. So when I was 15, my best friend at the time was going through self-harm and suicidal thoughts. And it really is what opened my mind to want to learn more about mental health and just be the most supportive friend I could possibly be. Over the span of a year of learning about that, we found other people online, on Twitter, people that were going through the same thing. The Night Buddy Project was created. There were three different people that I followed who were thinking of suicide. And I stayed up until like 2 a.m. or around then to think of an idea on how to prevent it from happening. And I thought, why not create a way for people to find a friend? So you team up two people. And what does the buddy system do specifically? So it gives people a friend that has a similar interest. We don't want to pair people based on their diagnosis because we want people to focus on things in life that are their passions or things that they want to talk about that might make them feel better about themselves. So we have things like music, TV shows, 
We have different LGBTQ identities. We have different ethnicities. We have a lot of different interests. I feel like a lot of teens can't find a positive peer support system in their community, and they go online to find that. And we're trying to basically get rid of that awkward step of finding someone that has the same interests and giving people a way to find those people in an easier and less awkward way. And connect and Mm -hmm. really connect. And so what are some of the things that you've learned and that people can do to support their friends or individuals who may be dealing with mental health challenges? One of the biggest things that I've learned very recently, like I'm a sophomore in college at Drexel right now. And I mean, eating is definitely a hard thing to like do in college. I feel like so many people just forget to do that. And just forcing your friend to do simple like self-care or like self-love things like that is so important, like getting the proper nutrients and even things like encouraging them to get out of bed if they're in bed all day. Mm. And I mean, really just listening is I feel the most important hear them out because I mean some people just get so much from venting about their problems and just having it out there and having someone to hear like what they're going through yeah and do you ever encourage them to get counseling or help yeah that's that's also a definite key thing to do if you have a friend that isn't seeking professional help in my case my friend wasn't seeking help and I knew that that would have been the best thing for her But I was afraid at the time because I was 14. And I mean, we never really had any kind of mental health education as like what you can do as a friend going through throughout high school. I only learned about mental health for like one unit and it wasn't I learned more online compared to that. People don't really understand the basic concept of mental health that like everyone has it and that anyone can be affected by mental illness. I mean, a lot of people are genetically predisposed to mental illness And then some people might just have life events that can cause depression or PTSD or things like that. It needs to be talked about, especially in middle school through college, because I know definitely in college that a lot of people will go through times of mental distress and Mm -hmm. they don't really know how to handle it because college is just so overwhelming and shocking to the system being away from home for the first time a lot Mm -hmm. of times. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of colleges have very long wait lists for treatment. Like, I know Temple has had a lot of student deaths recently, and I know a lot of people I've been friends with on Facebook that go to Temple have been talking about how the wait list is, like, over a month long, and that's not okay. To get counseling? Yeah, and that's not okay. Like, mental health care is something that needs to be accessible right away. And with all the school shootings, I mean, even if it didn't happen at your school, it has to be stressful just thinking that it could happen. So where can people get in touch if they, because I'm sure you guys could use donations for volunteers who have that type of talent and knowledge. Where can people find you? Our website is www.buddy-project.org. And we have tabs on the top of our site. So Get Involved has all the things you can do to get involved with our organization. We do campaigns. We try to do those every couple months. So we just had one for Mental Health Awareness Month. And then we also have a youth advisory board and we're going to be opening up applications for the 2019 board in a little bit. So if you're 13 through 25 and are passionate about mental health, um, definitely apply to that. And then donations. We have a donate button. All right. Well, I just want to say to you, um, Gabby, you know what? This is much needed. And especially right now. And I want to say congratulations to you on Buddy Project. You can check them out at buddy-project.org. 
volunteer. Sign up if you need a buddy, if you know a friend, brother, sister, family member, need a, a buddy. Gabby can help. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. We now have our own Twitter account, so you can follow us at Flashpoint Show. You can also follow KYW News Radio on Twitter. And my Twitter account is Cherry Gregg. You can use the hashtag Flashpoint and let us know what you think. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can use your radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. And please, please, please leave us a review. We need your comments to push us to the top. Now, if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Albert Einstein once said, the world is dangerous not because of those who do harm, but because of those who look at it without doing anything. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.